Good evening, ladies and gentlefolk. How are we all doing? So, what I was going to talk to you um, about this evening is the uh, primary focus of uh, the channel, where things are moving, where I see things going um, as the year unfolds. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment is to get everybody as up to date as possible. So if I find material that I've had sitting around uh, on the laptop that is good, I'm going to put it up. I'm going to put it out there. <clears throat> I want everybody to be um, up to where I'm up to. And basically, I want to accelerate things and kind of act like we're in a rush and not hold anything back. Um, this is my intuitive instinct that this is the right thing to do. Um, I don't know why I've decided that like we are in a rush, but I've decided we are. <laughs> we should hurry the fuck up. Um, there are things that I really want everybody to sort of be up to date with that are ideas that have been rocking around in my head for a while. People are commenting on the new videos that I just released. Uh, the It was called the Roadmap to a Cure for CPTSD like they were just shot yesterday. They're two years old. They're from the summer of uh, 2017. Um, and they've been around for that long. And I'm like, I need to share this with people. Um, because I want to get everybody up to date with that. Because then I want to start looking into new material. I think that there is a tendency for things to move towards solidification. You know, I did... I did a thing about um, madness being key to success. And it kind of became, as after I did that, that stuck in my head. You know, I'm, I drew a split on the whiteboard and I said, over here is what is known and over here is the new. Um, I can't even remember what motivated me to do that, but it's been on my mind a lot. And I'm like, okay, things start out fresh and new and mobile and then they solidify. That's how things go. And you can end up with a sort of slow poisoning effect of a dogma. And you can end up with a slow poisoning effect of, um, uh, and I'm, I'm actually talking about myself here, of going, okay, well, I'm now in some position of authority about this subject. And then I'm going to start calling myself an expert and start spurting my wisdom on people, whether they like it or not, whether that, whether I have their permission or not. And I really, really, really don't want that. It doesn't feel good to me. It doesn't somatically feel good um, at all. And I want to keep things spontaneous. I want to keep things moving. I want to keep them fresh because I find my tendency has become, this is not conscious, this is an unconscious tendency, to move at as glacial a pace as everyone else. Glacial. So you have people going, here's a system of therapy. Right, we've done that now. And then it doesn't change for 30 years. And you're going, seriously, you've had 30 years of experience using the, these principles and you're going to do nothing. There's no major changes. There's no major... That seems A, like... That sounds like laziness to me. That seems really, really unfortunate. And on the other, the flip side of the coin is, I know that when you put a gun to people's heads, and when I've had a gun put to my head, figuratively speaking, you make big leaps. 
And if I just put a gun to my own head, figuratively speaking, and go, can you, if I asked you to, to give people something that was useful today, that's fresh, that's not been said before, can you do it? And the answer is, well, gun to the head, yeah, something would come that would be useful. So I don't know, man. Like, I also want to delineate with a very clear boundary that whilst I do have a degree in psychology, I know, and I do know how to read research papers, and that is a brag because I'm looking around online and I'm thinking, there's a lot of people talking research, but I don't think they know how to read a fucking abstract. <laughs> there's a lot of people talking like that. Uh, area like talking up the research and talking up the science and I'm like you know there are rules to this and you you gotta you gotta follow them like don't toot your own horn and then not follow the rules because you make yourself look ridiculous so I'm not going to move away from the research in fact if anything I'm going to move back towards the research um but without being glacial and without stultifying and without like slowing it down so I want to keep it moving I want to keep it dynamic I'm not an academic um, I tried to go back into university a couple of years ago. I'm not going to try again. It's not the world for me. It's not the right milieu for me. Um, and I'm not a psychotherapist. It's called Spartan Life Coach. I'm not speaking as a psychotherapist. I'm not speaking as a counsellor. I'm speaking as the frustrated client of, of counsellors and psychotherapists. Historically, and I always kind of assume that people know my backstory because I'm a human being, I'm a single point of consciousness, so I live solipsistically and I assume, of course everybody knows, my backstory is that this grew out of a self-defense channel. This is from a self-defense channel. This is this Spartan Life Coach grew out of another project which is still running called streetfightsecrets.com, which is from 2004. Streetfightsecrets.com was me teaching people what I wish my martial arts instructors had taught me over the years. Then I noticed that a lot of people who were dead hard and could fight really well, and they were policemen and they were police women and soldiers and bodyguards and what have you, couldn't handle themselves at home. They couldn't say no to their wife. They couldn't have an argument with their husband. They couldn't deal with the stress of their kids. And I was like, this is a problem. The fact that you can go out and shoot a criminal um, and, and you know, follow every procedure and do it efficiently and walk away from it and be okay, but you can't have an argument with your spouse without having a total meltdown is no good, is no bueno. So the course Spartan Life Coach is called Spartan Life Coach because it was to teach people who were from the law enforcement and military how to assert themselves. And you might think that's a really weird niche to go into. Like why would people like that need to assert themselves? Because they do, that's a problem. It grew from that. And it's got the same ethos, which is I as a client of, of psychotherapists and of counselors struggling with CPTSD, which I didn't know that that's what it was over the years. I'm telling you stuff and I'm developing stuff that I wish had been developed for me. So I want to be really, really clear with y'all so that you know where I'm coming from, so that you don't feel misled or misguided. None of this comes, none of this is peer-reviewed. None of this is published research. I will cite peer-reviewed published research and I will say, this is the published research, the, this is the author, this is the date. When it is my opinion or I just made it up, I will tell you loud and clear, it's my opinion. I've made it up. These are models. 
These are models that may be useful. These are models that have proven over the years to have been useful to people. I don't want to get, I don't want to find myself in some sort of trouble uh, further down the line with people going, you claimed you were a psychotherapist. You claimed that these were courses and techniques that had been peer reviewed and, and published. They're not, they're not. Well, why don't I use the ones that are peer reviewed and published and been proven to work? Because they don't, that there's none. Point me to them, point me to them. Somebody just wrote peer review is a joke anyway. There's a video on YouTube, I can't remember its name. Uh, you know, if people are interested, I'll find it. Where they, he goes through a meta-analysis of peer reviewed research that's been published from multiple disciplines, not just psychiatry, not just psychology, but biology, chemistry, physics. And this meta-analysis said, in 45% of all the studies that were uh, analyzed, there were major, major faults in the structure of the research, major faults. So even like somebody's just said, what's well, like peer review is a joke, right? The peer review system is, you know, science is, is not an exact science. The published research is not gospel. It's not, you know, Moses didn't bring it down from the mountain written by the finger of God. I'm telling you, like, there's stuff out there that is standard practice that is peer-reviewed and published, and it's, it's garbage. There are people out there who are way more qualified than me, and they can't get any traction with a client after years. It would make, my, it would make what I do now redundant, and I wish, I wish it was because, to be honest with you, I actually find it quite hard working in this area. I'd rather be in, in doing something else. I have like, there's five or six things I would rather be doing that I'd find a lot more uplifting. I find this quite hard. You know, as somebody who's dealt with a lot of childhood trauma, I don't like talking about, I don't like having childhood trauma as my daily bread. It's hard for me. It's very, very, it's taxing for me. And people go, oh, he's a charlatan. He's doing this to make money. I'm like, you do know, there are other skills that I have that would make me take so much more and would be way, way easier for me to do. So I just want to be clear with everybody what this is and what this is not. Um, and the one of the objectives, one of the objectives was to see if there is a chance that you can actually help people to heal just by doing YouTube videos one of the objectives. Can you have people passively listen to stories, to, you know, dumb comments about things that happen in a Star Wars movie or something James Bond once said and linking that into some quite hard to understand element of psychoanalytic theory and having that stick in people's heads. And it is working for some people. It's working. It's, um, it's uh, but it doesn't work for everybody. And there's some people who, just don't just don't like my style they don't like the demeanor and that's that's fine as well um so yeah i wanted to be really clear with that and just say if you're seeing an acceleration in material coming out i want to put into play stuff so that everybody's up to a certain level so we get everybody up to a good solid green or blue belt level and then start pushing things forward because i think we're going to have other problems to deal with soon I'm not trying to freak people out. I'm not a prepper. I'm not a doomsayer. I'm just like, come on now. We 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 all need to fucking we all need to have a bit of a jolt 
and get this sorted. It's it's if you can deal with um, emotional flashbacks and you can release some of the uh, anxiety and depression, if I can help you to have better functioning relationships that are more fulfilling, with more intimacy, with less uh, opportunity for abuse, let's get that done. Let's just get that done. There's no, what, what are we waiting for? There's nothing, there's nothing to wait for, so we'll do that. Okay, so I just wanted to make that, that, that statement and, and sharpen everybody up. Um, if you've got any questions, um, I'm happy to answer them now. Questions should end of course, with a uh, question mark. Um, Ian says, this is great. It feels as though we are learning together. I would like that. I mean, if we, you know, I've just done that documentary about the toxicity of social media. Um, and one of the things that came out for, of that for me personally was to like, if I'm gonna use the tech, like right now I'm holding a phone in my hand, which I have a story about, which I'll tell you in a minute. Um, and we're gonna use the social media, let's, not be slobs about it. It encourages a slovenly usage. It encourages a slobbish, poorly boundaried, oh, I've had an impulse, I've had an idea, let me pull it up on my... No, let's be really samurai-like, crystal clear, this is what I'm using the social media for. And if, if I can create a community where people feel like they're learning together, they're sharing stories, they're moving forward, that is a positive use of the technology. Um, to wit, to woo. Can I just remind everybody, like, I, I am tighter than most channels are with the, with the comments. If you're gonna write something, check first whether it has a point, check first if it has, has a purpose. Um, generally speaking, I'm really happy with the channel. There's very few uh, troll comments coming through, but every once in a while I will just read a comment and I'll be like, that probably could have just stayed inside your head or uh, that's something that could have been resolved internally rather than worked out externally via arguments with other people in the comment section. So, you know, be, what's, what's the word? Is there a word intentful? There's no such word as intentful, but be intentful when um, using the social media and when using the tech. So if anybody has any uh, comments, uh, questions, uh, you can ask them now. Elizabeth says, so is story your history, question mark? Um, oh, when you, you're referring now to when dropping out of story as a, as a when I was talking about meditation and, and, and spirituality. Uh, yeah, your story is partly your history and it's partly other people's history and it's partly culture. How do you look after yourself after a day of doing your job? I go to the gym and I smash the weights and I smash the punch bags and um, I chat to my mates and then I go out and I might dance, um, doing a lot of bachata at the moment. So I'll be there on the bags and I'll be smash, I've done Muay Thai since I was 18, I'll smash the bags. But on my, um, on my headphones, it'll be, some, it'll be some like cheerful, upbeat Dominican song about, you know, I met this girl, singing away in Spanish, I met this girl in the market, she's the, be most beautiful girl I've ever dee, 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 dee. so like I'll be going oh, smashing the bags and in my head it'll be dee, 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 so I'll be I'll be happily doing that um, and other than that it's time off uh, which I'm about to do I'm about to take uh, some time off I'm gonna take four days straight uh, no tech and uh, no work which I'm really looking forward to I'm gonna go down to Spain uh, for a few days I've been talking about wanting time off and feeling chained to my phone 
I went to the gym the other day and left my phone at home. And you go, so what? Well, I live in Liverpool and the gym I use is on the Wirral. So I was actually without the phone uh, for three hours because it's a, it's, it's a long round trip. And I was like, oh, there's he goes. Like message from the unconscious. Two days later, I just left my phone in an Uber. Didn't have a phone for uh, 24 hours. Um, which is, it's just a, a, an amusing aside. Like be careful of what you say because your unconscious can take it as a command and just go, oh, right, you don't like this piece of tech, right? <laughs> That's just you just find yourself just spewing it off and chucking it in a bin somewhere. Uh, where did your interest in the effects of social media stem from? And do you have any recommended reading on that topic? It says Pink Unicorn Glitter. It stemmed from, we weren't going to look at social media. It was about the adolescent suicide rate. And I was like, that's unacceptably high. It's unacceptable that eating disorders have, have tripled. The, the admissions to emergency, uh, accident and emergency uh, in hospitals have tripled in certain age groups in the last five years for eating disorders. Uh, in certain demographics, we're looking at um, uh, suicide rates that have gone up by um, 50% in certain other demographics, depending on the stats you're looking at, they're claiming it's more like 150%. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just unacceptable, especially in adolescence. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to do, we originally called um, the documentary Complex, and it was all going to be about complex PTSD. And then as we move forward with it, I was like, because I was really resistant to the idea of social media. In my head, people who claim that social media was corrupting the minds of the youth were of the same mentality as people in the 70s going, punk rock is, is awful, it corrupts the minds of the youth and it obsesses them with sex and blah, blah, blah. And then in the 90s, in my era, the punk rock of the 90s was gangster rap music and Ice-T's album was banned and Two Live Crew was banned and Public Enemy was not banned but extremely controversial and we had, you know, you had crossover stuff like Rage Against the Machine and um, and I was like, this is all bollocks. This is just the, this is the, uh, the, the hip-hop, the punk rock and before that the rock and roll and before that the jazz music of our day is now social media until I sat down with Sam and I had a chat with Sam and uh, he just sobered me up on it. He was like, listen, this is what it's actually doing. And he gave me references. He gave me the research to read. And he said, you look it up. You know, the Facebook executives have admitted it. Uh, the, um, they've hired people from this industry, from that industry. And I was like, oh shit, yeah. And then I started to read the published research. So the recommended reading I'd have for you is go on Google Scholar and put in social media and depression. Um, don't bother putting in I mean, you can put in social media, depression, and adolescent if you want to, but I would just read some of the, just read, just skim the abstracts. Just skim read. You, when you're reading research papers, if you can read an abstract properly, maybe read the abstract and then jump down to your, to your results and your final thoughts, um, you'll get a pretty good sense of what's going on. You don't have to sit there and read every bit of, you know, statistical analysis if you don't want to, but I would read them. And just look at the weight of research. And, it's, and, and it, the research is not, we think that maybe in certain conditions, perhaps there could be a link um, uh, between social media usage and depression. And then they'll always give recommendations for further study. We recommend that more study, they're not saying that, they're saying there is a definitive, strong link between the more time you spend on social media, the more depressed and anxious you are. And when you come off it, the less time you spend on it, the less depressed and anxious you are, which is true. I have noticed my 
it's a weird feeling. It's kind of like anxiety. It's like being hyperactivated um, since coming back and using the phone again and since coming back and being on YouTube again. It's, it's not good. It's not good. It's not harmless. It's not helpful. Well, it is helpful, obviously. It's not it's not a neutral tool. It's a, it's a dangerous tool. So that's what got us into the social media. And once I read the research, I'd opened Pandora's box. I was like, okay, this is, this is awful. This is, this is a really serious situation. It's bad for adults. It's bad for me. I'm not a digital native. I think Instagram, I know Instagram is bollocks. I know Facebook is bullshit and people are lying. I'm not, I'm 40. I'm not 14. And it still affects me. And I'm, psychologically literate, emotionally literate, it still affects me. God knows what it's doing right now to 12-year-olds all over the globe, just absorbing that shit. And, you know, I might be on, uh, when, I was, when I was still on Facebook and Instagram, I might use it for an hour and a half a day. They're saying kids now, on average, in the Western world, are using it for seven hours a day. That's a lot of time in indoctrination, a lot of time being brainwashed. It's, uh, it's not a good situation at all. Sorry, I've stopped reading the... Um, the questions. What about YouTube? YouTube, you know, it's it's up to you uh, how you use it. I use it with intentfulness, um, but it's not neutral. I I am. It makes me feel hyper. There's. It's not quite anxious. It's um. It's an. There's an agitation that will go when I don't use it for four four or five days. It'll disappear. I, it's. I don't know, and I'm not really a hundred percent sure why. Though I have read the stuff about the algorithms that are in there, the way that one of the things is I find it quite demeaning. There's something about it that just seems really, it's quite puerile, it's quite childish. There's, there's something, yeah, you, the person asked me that question about YouTube, just said, I get sucked in, so do I. Ugh, like it, but that's what it's designed to do. And I think maybe the why it feels demeaning is it's appealing to the worst, dumbest, the most monkey mind elements of human nature. To be like, hey, little chimp, you want to see this flashing light? You want to hear the funny noise? It's like, it's, you know, I found myself looking at memes yesterday. These are videos made by kids for kids. And it's funny. It's funny. And then I'm sat there, I'm going, why am I watching a meme compilation? I don't even know what half of these, they're, they're in jokes to do with modern culture that like a 14 year old would get that I don't get. Some of it is funny. Like it really is funny. It is, it's thoughtful. It's, it's well done. It's intelligent. But I'm like, why am I, why am I consuming this? Now? I have books to read. <laughs> yeah, you get sucked in. I was only going on to see if people like my latest video, and before I know it, I'm watching all kinds of crapola. Gareth says, I don't mind YouTube. YouTube isn't the, uh, isn't the contest that Instagram is. It's not the contest of, this is me. This is my life you know, my life is so great, everything is so awesome, or maybe some channels are using it that way. But probably the people in the age group who are watching this now and our interests, we probably don't use it that way and we wouldn't bother. You're more like, you're probably more, you're probably on here just telling the truth and just going, I actually feel really depressed today. <laughs> I actually have had a really shit day. You're more likely to say that, whereas Facebook and Instagram is, is generally is, uh, is the other way. What is your take on the social media Momo scare targeting and traumatizing children? I have refused to watch uh, the videos on it um, because I don't want that shit in my head. I, I, I found out about something else that I won't even name. Um, I did an experiment for my talk at the Best You 
like three days before I was chatting to the organizer, she said, we've got another slot for you. Do you want to talk? And I said, yes. And uh, she said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, uh, what would you have me do? You, you have, you have kids, right? She said, yeah. Cause I was in the best youth section. So I was talking about young people's mental health. And I said, what, what's one of your concerns? And she was like, well, my daughter being on, on YouTube and you know, her body image and how she feels. And I was like, boom, right. Okay. Let me, let me start doing research, uh, on, uh, eating disorders and, um, the social media usage, particularly in teenage girls, <sighs> flipping open that door. And I was like, my God, this is horrendous. So I ran an experiment. I set up an Instagram account, which I've since deleted, where I pretended I was a teenage girl. And I was like, hashtag suicide, hashtag depression, hashtag bulimia, hashtag anorexia, pro anorexia, pro Anna, pro Anna is now a banned hashtag on Instagram. And um, yeah, I trained the algorithms inside of seven minutes to just show me the most horrendous stuff. The idea, like, I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's too dark for me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm tough, but I just, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to know there's people out there encouraging kids to do shit like that. It just, uh, I, I cease to function. I go into like a freeze response if I look at that stuff. So I'm afraid I don't have much useful feedback on it because I didn't want to learn what it was. Uh, I highly recommend reading Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. I think it's what you need, especially a great easy book for reading while you're on vacation. Okay. Ishmael. Okay. What is the difference between God syndrome and NPD? I'm not sure what God syndrome is. Is that an officially recognized? You mean a God complex? I don't know. I mean, I've, I know that there is psychiatric literature or uh, psychological literature, certainly, that references a God complex. I don't know whether it's ever been as a thing. Is it a real, is it a real disorder? I only know like, I only know the six pages of the DSM that I need to know to answer people's questions about, about cluster B. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not up on there. Uh, I'm not up on it at all. Like uh, people have asked me about other disorders, like, um, you know, schizoid and I just go, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't read, I haven't read the research. I've not read the definition. So I, I really don't know. God complex. And NPD, yeah, it's probably like a colloquial way for saying the same thing. Um, if you think that you have godlike status, then yeah, that's, that sounds like uh, the same formation as him. DSM is a joke anyway. Are you the same person that said peer-reviewed research is a joke anyway? You have no respect for authority. <laughs> Here's a woman who doesn't give a fuck if it's down in writing. Listen, serious people sat in a room together and spoke on that and voted on it. So we have to. Messianic complex is real, says Mariana. Thank you, Mariana. Gracias. Mariana from Galicia, who's not from Galicia. Um, messianic complex, yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I, I agree with you, lady, who has no time for these things. I, I do think, I, I have a cynical view, but I like to know that it's there. I, I, I don't think it's worthless. I just don't submit to it. I'll just go, look, this is what they're saying. I mean, like I've been saying for years, the, I, I go by the DSM. I could go by the World Health Organization. I could go by other people's definitions. I, I read the DSM definition. And I'm like, this seems good. One day I might just go, this actually seems a little bit too stiff and a little bit out of date. I might be at that point now where I'm like, I'm not even sure that these are descriptions of different personality disorders or personality disorders at all. But uh, anyway. <clears throat> 
Richard, what if a stranger opens up? Oh, don't be daft, mate. Come on. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Sorry, I just got trolled. Uh, <clears throat> Joe asks, hi, Joe. I see you're a regular commenter on the channel. Thanks very much for your support, mate. Uh, hi, Richard. Any thoughts on Gabo Mate with regards to addictions and trauma? I don't think I've ever heard him say anything that I disagree with. I, I really like Gabo Mate. Um, very human, very uh, humanistic approach. Um, what he says on addictions, I think, is great. I think him and Johan Hari, on their, uh, the, you know, when they talk about addictions, they seem to be very, very similar. Maybe we should try and get them in a room together or do a seminar or something. Um, would be awesome. And I think they both seem to follow a similar line of reasoning that like the opposite of addiction is connectivity, is human connectivity, which is really turns the whole addiction thing on its on its head, which I really, really like. I have uh, I have a lot of time for that. Uh, Rene says, I've met Gabor Mate. He's a very true person. That's awesome. That's really cool. I'd love to meet him. I'd love to meet the uh, Johan Hari. Thank you. Yes, very down to earth. Cheers, I'm reading Hungry Ghosts. Um, I should do that actually. Gabo Mate in the realm of Hungry Ghosts is incredible. I'll give it a go after I've read Ishmael. Okay. The guy who wrote Chasing the Scream. Yeah, Chasing the Scream. What do you think of motivational speakers? Uh, yeah, fine. I don't really listen to any, but what are your thoughts on weed and CPTSD? Uh, I don't really have any. Like, weed is one of these things. I have so many friends um, who like to smoke weed. Um, and I'm just like, God, it seems to me it's the most boring. I just don't like it. I don't like, I don't like anything about it. I don't like the high from it. I don't enjoy it at all. It's a really, really dull drug. But some of the people I know who smoke a lot of weed are really clever and they claim that it helps them a lot. So I don't know, but, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not big on it. I'm not big on it, but I'm not necessarily against it either. I mean, I can't, I can't say don't do it. Um, because drugs are bad and okay when I still enjoy, I drink alcohol, so. What is your take on the lack of boundaries, re-social media and even the dating scene? Unsolicited pictures, seems like it is the norm now. Just curious as to what you think. Um, well, I think like the, uh, the tech, not just the social media, but the smartphones and the social media, um, it's it's worth saying, and I need to reiterate this more frequently. It, it's a cycle, right? I mean, social media is a powerful thing that has effects, but it's the fact that you can access it. Like if you just pull out a tissue and blow your nose, you're burning about as much energy as it takes you to pull out a phone and just click it and, and, and look on it and just go and just look. Um, so people are looking too much and that is indoctrination. That is uh, brainwashing. Um, and yeah, absolutely. It, it's affected everything. It's really, really affected everything. And of course it's affected the, uh, the dating scene, massively affected the dating scene. But, uh, when I was having to think about it today, I would also say that like with the dating scene and not just dating, but being in relationships, there are other very stressful factors going on at the moment that I also would like to cover in a documentary. One of them is economics. Like a lot of people are really struggling financially at the moment and forward slash or they're in jobs that they absolutely fucking hate. 
and the impact of that on dating and on relationships is also huge. So there's a lot of background factors that make relationships, I think, relationships are always going to be stressful. They've always been throughout human history uh, difficult and and full of drama and, and stuff, but it, it's it's agitated and aggravated uh, things. Um, it's led us further down the path, the path that we were already on, of commodifying each other and commodifying the relationship and even commodifying the time that we spend with with each other and what we do when we're together with each other. And um, it's, uh, it's not good, but yeah, dating, uh, horrifying. I... I you know, I, if I speak personally about my personal life, it sets some people off for some reason. Um, so I need to be careful what I say here. But to, towards the end of last year, I spent three months trying to date. And um, uh, wow, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a strange time to be alive. It's a fascinating time to be alive. I'm really, really grateful um, to be alive now. Uh, but it's challenging. It's challenging. And I think a lot of things that, people we can still touch because they're still alive, never had to deal with as an issue. Like, you know, our grandparents, our parents, never would have had to consider it as an issue we, we have to deal with. And I think for people who've been in relationships for more than 10 years, you have no idea how savage being single is now. It's, it's absolute barbarity. It's barbarity out there. It is absolutely savage and uh, I was just like you know what I'm going to withdraw from the field of battle and I'm going to go and do some other stuff and then I'll return to this it's like something I'll come back to but uh, I need to you, you've be, be careful be careful these are strange times watch, watch yourself <laughs> Casey says uh, same thing goes for friends dude yeah I'm afraid so uh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid it does. Uh, friendships uh, can be, uh, I think, are strained now. It's harder to stay friends with people now um, than it, than it, than at other times. I'm sure it's it's always been. That's also challenging. Um, I actually thought that it was a problem, like because I'm the age I am and I'm still single and a lot of my friends are married. I'm like, oh, it's that. And then uh, through the uh, dance classes and through. Because uh, I do a lot of uh, the classes that I attend, they're at the Liverpool Guild. And then through the social media documentary and chatting to people who are like between the ages of 20 and 24, they're really struggling to maintain friends as well. And I'm like, you're at university, you're 23 years old and you're struggling to have mates. You find yourself on a weekend with nobody to go out with. That's really, really. So it's, you know, it was it was good for me. It was eye opening to hear that and to see that. But also worrying. I was like, what the hell? I don't like when I was at university. We just, I don't know. We just got on with it. Social media makes me fear I cannot protect myself against infidelity. Any thoughts? Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to. I think I'd have to go off for an hour on that one. Like, it's, you're, you've asked the question that, that points to the tip, the tippy tip tip of an iceberg. Um, what is fidelity? Why do people engage in infidelity? Are we going to blame social media for that? I don't think we can. Um, social media facilitates infidelity for sure. But why do people want to cheat? 
And why do people get into relationships? And should we get into relationships that are monogamous? Should we not? Can you... I just have questions like, if I was going to get into another committed long-term relationship, I don't know where I would stand on social media usage. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I've been in relationships uh, that were long-term too in the last 15 years whilst social media usage has been rampant. And I never considered it. I was just like, oh, it's fine. I used it. My girlfriend used it. It's no problem. It's no problem. I look back now and I'm like, no, no, I don't think. But what, what are we going to do? Like, what am I going to be? Some Luddite who's like, I'm not dating you if you've got social media switched on. You're going to have to switch. You can't. You can't. I don't know, man. So, yeah, I, I have no uh, useful answers for you. Ask me a question about recovering from CPTSR and I can help you. Uh, the dating scene. I'm not a dating coach, I'm afraid. <laughs> I haven't cracked that one. I see. Uh, my brain doesn't. I just kind of go, like, I just I go, oh, that's complex. <laughs> CPTSR, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, okay, I'll deal with that. Uh, social media is a real issue amongst young people and relationships. Dude, it is a real issue amongst everybody and relationships. I know people in their 60s arguing about social media behavior and it's negatively impacted, impacted the relationship. And I'm not even making that up just to tell you a point that they're in their late 60s and they've I've heard them arguing about social media usage. It's a, it's a boundary-breaking, boundary-eroding, boundary-less environment where false intimacy is actively encouraged by the people who've made it, a false sense of intimacy. Plus, if you combine it with the tech, which is the fact that you can pull your phone out and wherever you are, wherever you're doing, you can take a picture and that person can receive that picture inside of seconds. I don't know, man. I don't know. It's, uh, maybe I would be a Luddite. Maybe I would just say, listen, you, you, I can't have you on, on, on social media. I'm not on it and you can't be on it either. I don't know. I don't know. Um, apart from that, like, I know how much it winds people up. And I, I, like, I don't want to sound like an extremist. But my views on it are becoming extreme. I think it drives people crazy. I think it actually uh, uh, drives them completely nuts. So, yeah, Luddite gang. Hashtag, hashtag Luddite gang. <laughs> uh, somebody's talking about getting dogs and getting, getting a puppy. Uh, yeah, if anybody's got any questions, um, feel free to ask them. Just stick a question mark on the end of them. Lily asks, is depression around my birthday CPTSD related? I feel like I'm going into sad baby. No one loves me. No one cares. Thinking sounds like sad baby. It could be. I mean, um, it could just be, it could set off an emotional flashback depending on how you feel about your birthday and uh, what's going on for you environmentally. One of the things that I'd like to move towards this year is getting outside of the idea of all our, all our, humans' mental health problems being rooted in individualized trauma, childhood trauma, or even trauma in adulthood, and start saying, okay, can we explore our economic environment? Can we explore our lifestyle more? Can we explore social relationships? Can we explore the possibility that you feel depressed because you're in a depressing environment, or you feel anxious because your lifestyle is anxiety-inducing? I'd like to move to that 
And I don't mean, oh, later on, like at the end of the year, I mean like within the next month, um, which is why there's an acceleration of me pushing material out because I really want to get everybody up to speed uh, quickly. Very intrigued about reparenting. How would you do that? It's hard. It's hard. I mean, the the um, injunctions that you received when your neuroplasticity was at its highest from the highest authority in your reality are the ones that are most likely going to stick. So identifying that we have to work against some of them and replace them is a big part of the battle. And then who knows, man, we may... We, it may take years or to a certain extent, it may take the rest of our lives uh, to move them. But have hope. Like if you identify it and you start working on it with diligence, you're going to start to make big movements very, very rapidly. Um, like if I was going to formalize what I do and systemize it, that would be one of the fundamental principles of the system would be to say, okay, look, we need to look at superego injunctions, which is the fancy way of saying um, the internalized recordings that you receive from other people about what you should and shouldn't do and who, who and what you are and uh, altering them, altering them because that is the fastest route to repairing the damage that's been done is the fastest route to healing is the fastest route to getting on with your life i think uh thoughts of regret seem to suddenly come up just as i'm trying to get to sleep it takes like an extra half hour to go to sleep what to do yeah that actually sounds um it could be like a a, a low low energy impulse emotional flashback um regret about things that you've done i mean the whole sleep pattern thing i think if you're struggling to drop off at the end of the day um one common sense well not common sense but one practical uh tactic that isn't all that psychological is to wake up half an hour earlier than usual and then get sunlight water and movement within the first half an hour and if you the more movement you get the earlier in the day, the easier it will be to drop off late last thing at night. And obviously no tech and no TV for an hour before sleep, just read a book and then get, you know, by the, you, what you would like, what you, what you would consider a success would be where you pat yourself on the back is where you go to your bedroom, you get into your bed and you put your head on the pillow and you go to sleep with no effort, with no thought, you are just gone. You've won the game if you can if you can do that and when you've done that seven nights in a row and you've gotten like an undisturbed seven hours each time your life will change you you will change like your personality will start to change um it's it's so critical it's so so important are you going to do more work on codependency oh god yes really struggling at the moment with boundaries and speaking up for myself also feel like a child in an interaction yeah the codependency stuff is coming it's it's going to be a little bit further away because um i need to recover more like i'm comfortable with the cptsr recovery but my codependency issues are, are still there and it's it's something that i'm working on and i'm developing stuff testing on myself first to see if I can make it work, but it's tough. It's it's uh, it's sticky. It's very very sticky. 
Um, so once I've recovered more, I don't know whether there'll be like full scale recovery, but where I'm feeling less codependent and more, you know, like I have more of a desire to be self-serving rather than neurotically, obsessively others serving, then I would start talking about uh, healing from codependency at that point. Borderline victims seem to get shunned and invalidated because the BPD overshadows their disorder with a supposed attached stigma thoughts. Um, yeah. I mean, the whole thing with like the personality disorders and the rubber stamping um, of this is it, this is what you've got. For me, per like, I can't, I don't want to say, oh, the dogma should change and this is the way it should be done. What I had, the way I'd like to answer this question is by saying, for me personally, I would go the route of CPTSR and just, like, if I'm going to work with somebody who's been diagnosed as borderline, I am going to choose to assume that that diagnosis is incorrect. Um, and that it's actually a CPTSR response that was learned and so it can be unlearned. Uh, and skills can be taught that emotionally re-regulate the person, which resolves their perceptual perceptual issues that they're struggling with, which resolves the reaction, the drive towards reaction-seeking communication. Um, so I would move into the interaction with optimism and with a skills-focused approach, like, hello, fellow human, we're going to work on the things that are giving you trouble and we're gonna develop them like it's strength training. And you're gonna do reps every day to get better, aren't you? Do you wanna get better? Okay, this is how we're gonna do it. So that would be more my approach, how other people should do it. I mean, it's such a thorny issue. I mean, borderline particularly um, amongst therapists, as you say, because of the, uh, because of the stigma and not just because of the presupposed stigma, but because therapists have had their fingers burned particularly badly by borderlines, who do then, you know, it, it, it poisons the water. It's a real shame. It's, it's, borderline is such a, um, it's such a tragic uh, condition for everybody involved because it's such a sad story. The, the person creates the abandonment that they're terrified of. They force the abandonment that they're terrified of and they compel themselves like masochistically if you like to live their worst fears over and over and over again so and they withdraw they make huge withdrawals from interpersonal relationships they hurt people they wound people and not just symbolically and not just in a pressure testing way like they will cheat on their partner they will steal money from people. They'll do bad stuff, like proper, proper th things that are bad. And then people will just go, I'm, I can't let you sleep on my couch anymore. I can't let you, I can't give you a third chance. I can't do this for you. I can't do that for you. It's, 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 it's really tragic. It's really, really tragic. And I'm speaking to somebody who's, I, I, my last two long-term relationships, I think the, the thing that overshadowed the relationship in both was BPD and it's it's really sad it's really because I just watch these people who have so much to offer have so so much to offer the world systematically tear down all of their friendships and all of their relationships it's
oh, it's, uh, it's really unfortunate. So my approach would be um, the CPTSR response, the, the CPTSR model, very, very Pete Walker model. You're in a state of emotional flashback. We're going to reduce the emotional flashbacks. We're going to deal with the uh, superego injunctions. And that's, that's where I would go from. But um, yeah, there is a stigma attached to it. It's, it's a bloody shame, it really is. Uh, so what do you do when you have friends that are borderline? Uh, I don't... <laughs> I mean, if they have CPTSD, you deal with the fact that they're annoying and reaction-seeking and moody and demanding. If it's really, really what a clinician would diagnose as a personality disorder, you can't be friends with them. They're going to hurt you. And they're going to make you hate them because that's... Especially with borderlines, that's that's the... It's not really the end game, but it looks like the end game is to is to the end game <laughs> of the borderline is to go back to childhood and receive the love that they didn't get from their parents because and I had this explained to me back in by a good counselor in uh, 2008, 2009 uh, about my relationship when it broke down. A father or a mother can't reject you, no matter what you do. You know, you could be a serial killer, and uh, you, you've seen it. Everybody knows stories about it. And your mum, the mum is still there in the background going, no, he's, he's misunderstood, he's, he's very kind. It's, there's, there's always an excuse, because the love is unconditional. So they're looking for unconditional love, but they're actually looking for the unconditional love of a parent. And you as a proxy parent, you know, we all talk unconditional love, but unconditional love is just not practical. It's not workable. Um, love has to have boundaries. It has to have conditions when it's between two adults. It doesn't when it's between a parent and a child. Um, but a child who is three won't be a serial killer. I hope that what I just said there kind of makes sense and didn't cause more... Co <laughs> you could talk about the subject and you could talk it into confusion. The borderline's end goal is to reconnect to mummy and daddy and receive a love that cannot be broken, um, which is why they're doomed, because that doesn't exist. The escape is if you bring them out of the CPTSR, reduce the emotional flashbacks so their perceptions start to crystallize again and go, look, that what you're, this is what you're looking for. Please have the humility and the vulnerability to accept that this is a, a doomed, it's a doomed protocol but you do have a chance of attaching conditionally uh, as an adult with somebody. Would you settle for that? Could you settle for that? Because the road you're on is, well, aging borderlines. I mean, it's not good. It's, it's really, you know, there's, there's this path or there's this path and these are your choices. Um, and we really hope you choose door number two and we're going to help you and we're going to support you. But yeah, it's uh, very tragic, very, very tragic. I watched California last night. Brad Pitt was excellent as a psychopath. I haven't watched California in years. Brad Pitt is good in everything. I can't remember the last film I saw him in where I was like, oh, it was a bit ropey. Very good, very, very good. Friendships don't last with BPD. They don't want friendships. Um, they can't do friendships. Friendships are, if you think about it, if I can give you a simplistic way to think about it, um, I got this from a therapist whose name was Gary and he specializes in cluster B, and I can't remember his surname. There's a horizontal and vertical. So in a friendship, it should be horizontal. It should be a transaction. It should be quid pro quo, and it should be equal. 
but somebody with who truly has the the sickness the cluster B sickness they can't do uh, horizontal they can only do vertical so they have to be above you so they actually cannot do friendships and vert uh, sorry horizontal fair friendships this is my now my opinion not the published research it's my opinion actually uh, with a BPD they want the intimacy they want your friendship but you'll provoke an emotional flashback in them if you try to be friends with them so if you reciprocate they'll say can we be friends yeah sure can we be closer as friends yeah, sure why not that will provoke an emotional flashback and if you try to be equal if you try to if you try and treat them as a friend it'll set them off and they'll, they will attack you you will end up being attacked for your kindness imagine the tragedy of that you're actually punishing people for being vulnerable and for being kind which then trains them and conditions them to never be vulnerable and kind with you. So, Extra Dimension said, oh, that's true. One BPD told me explicitly that about the uh, friendship creating emotional flashbacks. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I actually just had an experience of it not that long ago. Oop, that sucks. I hate that. Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. If you have BPD friends in life, you won't heal. Get rid of toxic people to heal. Um, I would say, like, if you are, yeah, if you're looking, if you have identified that you have, like, a pronounced CPTSR condition and healing is your top prerogative, you, you can't afford to be in a relationship with reaction-seeking behavior types because they'll provoke emotional flashbacks in you. You won't heal whilst you're in a flashback. I can't do that. I don't have the, I don't know, there might be somebody out there who knows how to do that. I can't do that. I have to have you out of an emotional flashback to heal. No healing can happen. You, you can't, you can't, I can't reach you if you're in an emotional flashback. Nobody can. So we have to reduce the emotional flashbacks first. Well, if you're engaging in a lot of reaction-seeking communication with somebody who's trying to wind you up, you're unreachable and uh, you won't heal. Do, do, do. <clears throat> Extreme jealousy in BPD, says LA. There is, um, again, not published, my opinion, there is a trait uh, in the BPD end of the spectrum because these are spe this is a spectrum of personality disorders. Uh, you said jealousy. Um, I agree. I would call it hyper-competitiveness. So at the BPD end of the spectrum, all narcissists suffer from hyper-competitiveness, all, all the narcissistic personality disorder people. But the BPD end of the spectrum is extremely hyper-competitive. And you can find yourself... You think you're in a conversation and you end up in an argument. Somebody will ask you a question and you'll start to go, you'll start to walk, this is what they call, those who, I don't specialize in BPD, but the people who do, they write books called things like how to stop walking on eggshells. You end up walking on eggshells because somebody will ask you a question like, um, what, uh, what time do you have lunch today? And you go, oh, oh, do you mean at work? Yeah, I went out, uh, we went out for lunch at 12.30. So you're asked a neutral question and you give a neutral answer and that will be escalated within three more transactions to a full-blown argument to the point where you are conditioned to no longer want to answer questions and no longer want to speak because everything can lead to extremely high levels of conflict. Um, and I think a lot of that conflict is rooted in hyper-competitiveness where you don't you're in a game you're in a competition but you don't even you're not aware that you're in a game and you're in a competition um and it creates huge amounts of conflict and drama of course because 
you you'll be you then you'll get resentful you'll be like damn i just like what i didn't know we were competing what are we competing for are we in a competition you could have let me know and then that breeds resentment what do the relationship therapists tell us about resentment in relationships they say they tell us it's the single worst most detrimental emotion that destroys relationships is resentment not hatred not anger not uh frustration blah blah obviously all these emotions can then condense and calcify into resentment but once you've hit resentment you are in very very shaky territory and this is what they do they breed resentment um and then you're walking around then you, the resentments are horrible emotions to put in somebody because they then have to carry it it's like giving somebody a big heavy boulder to carry and going carry this resentment and then they're pissed off all the time and it's draining it's a tiring emotion to hold on to some people, and I'm fascinated by the subject, some researchers and authors have said that they think there's a, I think uh, Louise L. Hay, when she was alive, I used to say resentment is a cancer-inducing emotion. Now, I don't know um, that the relationship, this whole field is called psychoneuroimmunology, I don't know whether we can draw such simplistic, linear um, equivalences where you go, oh, you felt anger, so you'll have the flu. You felt resentment, this is a cancer-inducing. You felt this, so you'll... But I do think, and I think it will move into the realm of science and scientific research within the next 25 years, that absolutely certain emotions are going to be uh, cause illnesses, and they probably will cause a certain cluster of illnesses. So yeah, resentment is uh, potentially a, a killer. <laughs> Guys, when you write in capital letters, are you aware that it's um, it's shouting? <laughs> How can we step out of resentment? Um, I would be, if somebody's making you feel a lot of resentment, I'd be looking to reduce uh, the contact with that person and just draw a boundary and just go, look, I can't, I can't hang out with you. It's it's poisonous. You keep biting me. It's like hanging out with a snake. You keep biting me and I keep you know, feeling this way, so I, I can't hang out with you that much. Um, the only other way that I know of to deal with the residual resentment of a, uh, an unpleasant or exploitative or manipulative interaction is through emotional literacy. And you'd actually sit there and you'd write down the words that you feel that are behind the resentment. Why, what do you resent? Well, I resent the fact that I feel stupid. I resent the fact that I feel used. I resent the fact that I feel tricked. I resent the fact that I feel exploited. I resent the fact that I feel sh shame or, you know. So the resentment is just like, you know, the umbrella term for a whole uh, layering of, of different emotions. So to identify them can be very, very helpful. Very helpful. Marissa Peer states that how we internally talk affects our health inverted commas i'm so sick to death of and people make themselves sick thoughts question mark i i heard somebody say out loud what they were saying to themselves recently when they made a mistake this is somebody who i know very very well and um she's a laughy jokey person and um she made a mistake I'm gonna swear now, I'm gonna use swear words. And she said something quite strong like, oh, you, f you fucking idiot, you fucking idiot, you fucking, and it was like, it was dripping with contempt. It was like, you fucking idiot. And I was like, 
you dropped your glasses. What? Calm down. It's no big deal. This person's really trying to lose weight and really, really struggling with it. And what I wanted to do was to open a conversation about how, say if you want to make money or you want to lose weight or you want to move house or you've got this goal that you just can't hit, sometimes it's something else in the system that's stopping it. And I was like, you, like, say if you've been overweight a certain number of kilos for a number of years, the physiological laws indicate it, it's it's not going to drop off you. It's just not. The body's going to resist. It's going to fight for homeostasis and it's going to resist. So you need change in the system. You need behavioral change. So we all go, oh yeah, I need to exercise more and eat less. I know that, I know that. And I'm like, actually, my hypothesis is the behavioral change needs to go deeper than that. And you saying really caustic, acidic, harsh things to yourself when you make a mistake like, Oh, you, f you fucking idiot. You fuck like, for it was literally like she dropped her glasses or she tried to put her glasses on and dropped them. You fucking idiot. I was like, that, you don't, you won't want to admit it or talk about it, but that could be the thing that's actually causing you to eat too much because then your self-esteem is low. You make yourself feel anxious. You've gone into self-abandonment. You're treating yourself very cruelly and without much love. So you go, fuck it, I'll just eat a load of food. So that I get like a dopamine release. So that I feel really full and really sleepy. It's like taking a Xanax. And then I'm not as anxious and angry. I didn't have that conversation. Because I don't want to be... You know, I do this for a living. And I don't want people to be like, oh, fucking hell, here we go. I'm going to have a conversation. It's going to get all deep and weird. And about my inner workings where I didn't really ask for that. Um, so I didn't engage in it. But um, yes... I would say you absolutely can talk yourself into sickness. You can talk yourself into anything. I'm very, very careful with what I say because there's been too many times in my life where I've joked about something happening and then it literally happens and you start going, is the secret real? Is the law of attraction real? Or, and is there something going on with the unconscious where, you know, if you, if you say something enough times, the unconscious goes, oh, is that what you want? Oh yeah, we can totally do that. So I wouldn't say... Or I wouldn't allow myself, if I consciously caught myself, to, to say something like, I'm sick to death of this. Or I'm, you know, just don't be, be careful. But I did say, I'm sick of my phone. I'm sick of my phone. And then accidentally lose the phone a couple of times. So, yeah, I would be very, very careful with the internal dialogue. Ooh. Uh, other than Pete Walker's book, can you recommend any others for CPTSD recovery? What, what I would um, uh, recommend is rather than consume a lot of content, is get the Pete Walker book and interact with it. So buy the Pete Walker book and buy a pen and a notepad. Read it and take notes so that you end up with two books. One is your book, your Bible of CPTSD recovery, your thoughts, your feelings, what you want. Um, and don't try and consume it cover to cover like a book like maybe dip in here and there or like go, oh, I'm going to read some of this book today. I'm going to pull out, I'm going to just flick into a page at random. I'm just going to stick my finger in the book. Boom, right, I'm going to read this paragraph. I'm going to read the paragraph and then I'm going to write something about it. So that you're interacting with the material because I have noticed a tendency uh, in, in people that I'm working with, um, people that uh, Terry and Steve are working with to desire content like the content is magic. The content is not magic. 
You can't read a book, watch a video, or listen to an audio and magically be healed. It's not, it's not like, you know, there you go, say five Hail Marys and, and off you pop. It's not magic. You have to interact with the material. Um, so consume it slowly and work with it and you uh, write your own notes that go with that book. It is an excellent book and it's the only book you need. Um, it really is. It's the, it, the, there are other great books written on uh, CPTSD and, and recovery, but that is uh, the book. He's written out in that book is, I believe, the answer to 95% of all mental health issues that people actually go and see counsellors for. Not 95% of all mental health issues in the DSM or that have ever been written. But the, the so, okay, how to, how to put it? Most people see uh, counsellors and therapists, most, the overwhelming majority, for anxiety or depression or both. Anxiety or depression is um, nine times out of 10 is a uh, post uh, traumatic response. A ge you're just generalizing. You're so emotionally literate that you go, you know, I am, I'm anxious where actually it could be, uh, whatever it is. So yeah, that's a really, really good book to go with. Have you worked with Asperger's and CPTSD? I feel like there could be some overlapping in individual cases. I haven't. Um, Autism spectrum is not something that I know enough about. Um, I think I've had clients who were somewhere on the spectrum and, and they've said that they're somewhere on the spectrum and I've just gone, well, I can't help you with, I don't know anything about that, but I can help you with, with what I know about and we move forward, uh, we move forward like that. Um, but yeah, it's not, uh, I wouldn't want to pass comments on it because I really, really don't know enough. I know that I've, I've lived with uh, in my life, two two guys um, who've been diagnosed, and uh, it's quite the experience. I, I it, it's uh, you know Sheldon in in Big Bang. It's a very I find it to be quite, quite an accurate representation. Though the writers were asked, does Sheldon have Asperger's syndrome? They're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, okay. Pete Walker? Question mark. Pete who? Peter who? Pete Walker, the book is called, CPTSD, From Surviving to Thriving. Pete Walker, like a man who's walking, he's a walker. Shelley says, how tribes teach in story form, etc. That's what SLC feels to me. Your style on YouTube over the years feels like I've sat around a fire with a wise or funny uncle. That's, that, yeah, that's good then. That's, yeah, it's kind of like that. Uh, it would be like a, a, a tribal, um, narrative where you're not being hit over the head with like fire and brimstone morality you're not being hit with somebody who's talking in terms of very very stuffy highly intellectual concepts but you know yeah just trying to convey stuff that might actually be of use and of help so if that's how it feels then that's good that's it uh, i would honestly say sheldon isn't very accurate says says reen of sonos i'm sorry let me say it like this sheldon went well with my experience of the two guys that I lived with who had Asperger's syndrome. I should have been far clearer with that. Um, he's uh, the, the two guys that I lived with at different times, one in New Zealand, one in Malaysia, um, both were diagnosed and they both were very much like, like Sheldon. But as I said, and I repeat again, 
I don't know much about autism spectrum disorder and I wouldn't presume to uh, offer advice on it. What's your favourite colour? Do you have one? I did um, a sound bath last week uh, where they play a crystal bowl and different instruments over you. And I think um, I started to trip a little bit and um, I uh, saw the Ark of the Covenant covered in a coat of many colours and it was trippy man it was trippy it was like colours colours that don't exist and I was just like looking at the Ark of the Covenant going wow there's a lot of colour on that lad and then there was these blinking eyes all over it, it was not, I wasn't on any drugs I took no drugs I was just having a sound bath and somebody was giving me Reiki at the time um, but yeah it was intense man I, I like that I like uh, what's your favourite colour Trippy Ark of the Covenant colour. Somebody said I'm an Aspie, but nowhere close to, to Sheldon. Uh, how can we get covert narcissism recognised by family courts and social workers? They just don't say it. I don't know, mate. I really don't know. I stay away from the, the legal world um, as much as I can. Sorry, I can't help you with that. After watching your pep talk about making yourself do things, I made it to the gym today. Thanks for being tough. No problem at all. Glad you got to the gym. Are there any modern day intellectuals you find as rigorous with their science as Sam? Eh, rigorous with the science? Uh, Slavoj Zizek. Um, Noam Chomsky. Um, I don't, you know, uh, yeah. I listen, I listen to Slavoj Zizek quite a bit. I actually saw him. Well, I met him. Or rather, yeah, I met him. And then I went to see him lecture at Burbank University. I saw him inside of a Starbucks and I went in and I went, oh, I just want to say, oh, I really respect you and I like your work. Okay, bye. And then I ran off, sweating. And he went, yes, yes, whatever you want, coffee. <laughs> Alrighty, guys. I think I've been on for a, a little bit longer than I meant to. I'll answer one more question and then I will disappear. Put your glasses on. I knew there was something wrong. I knew I was like squinting at these <laughs> words. These little words. I'll do one more question. Uh, will people with CPTSD that are healing and doing the work forever be considered recovering CPTSD? I hope not. I hope not. But, you know, I don't, I don't know. I suppose uh, what would be good would be um, if... You got to the point where you didn't, you weren't interested in the subject, and you didn't want to talk about it anymore, and you just felt like life was twenty times easier than it was when you were experiencing emotional flashbacks all the time. At that point, I would say you've made, you've made some real progress, real progress. Marie Mariana Menendez says the socially awkward team. <laughs> That's me and you, isn't it? That's just yeah, a team of two, <laughs> a team of two awkward nerds. Okay, ladies and gents, um, that's it. Thank you very much uh, for your time and for your attention.